0: Hey, I'm Mike Kruse, the founder and CEO of Visible. As you scale your company, having the right guides at your side can make all of the difference. Each episode, we'll talk to fellow founders, investors, and experts. We'll dive into their zone of genius, as well as hear about their past mistakes to give you a better chance of success. This podcast is for founders, by founders. This is The Founders Forward. All right, everyone. Uh, Welcome to today's episode. Today, I'm joined by Lolita Taub and Eric Bond. Uh, We'll be getting into a podcast they just launched called The First Pitch. Uh, Disclaimer, this is our first uh, dual guest podcast. I'm really excited to see how this format works. But, you know, we'll see if there's any kinks in in, uh, getting this going. But I think it should be great. Uh, You guys said you were like Flavor flavor, and Hype Man. I think I'm going to hype you up real quick uh, myself. Uh, Some congratulations for both of you. So we'll start with Lolita Uh, We actually talked to Lolita a a while back. Uh, I think, well, time is a weird uh, thing right now. I think it was May of 2020, uh, talking about founders and first-time fundraising. Uh, Smashing success, great webinar. Uh, Since then, Lolita's launched uh, the Community Fund, where she is one of the founders of that and the general partner. We'll get into that. Uh, And I'm also joined by Eric Bond. Eric is the co-founder and GP of the Hustle Fund. Uh, you might have recognized the name, The Hustle Fund, because Elizabeth has been on a couple of our podcasts as well. Really excited to have Eric on the day uh, and really talk about the, the fundraising environment. And Eric, congrats to you as well, because Hustle Fund 2, I believe, was announced publicly late 2020. Is that right?
1: Officially not announced, but we'll oh. have more to say about that a little bit later. Okay. Uh, but thank you for that.
0: Okay. Not announced, but soon. Uh, Lolita, the Community Fund is announced, though.
2: <laughs> yes, we, we've been around now for about uh, going on four months, and it's it's been awesome.
0: Okay, awesome. Well, um, thanks so much for coming on. Maybe just to start, uh, we love talking about collabs at Visible, like co- people collabing uh, with other brands or people or, or movements. Uh, how did this collab come together between you guys, like the Hustle Fund and the Community Fund? of the and under the context of uh, you know we'll talk about the the first pitches podcast.
1: Yeah, I can start a uh, low if that's okay. So, uh first of all the the podcast just to clarify is called First Pitches. Uh you can check it out at firstpitches.com. Um and you know, uh, the start of First Pitches actually began I think from insights that Lolita probably had also, but also I've kind of landed on from several years ago that there's this really strange idol worship that happens in Silicon Valley. You know, there's, it started with like folks like Steve Jobs and later with like Mark Zuckerberg and maybe more modern equivalents of that, where you see a really polished view of founders that at their current state, it almost seems like manifest destiny. They're born to be great. They were just, they always had their shit together. They are overnight successes because it was meant to happen. But as we sort of peel back that layer more and more, we realized that actually on day one, when a lot of these founders started before anyone knew about them, they were scared, vulnerable, kind of crappy at pitching and, you know, all the things that we've experienced in starting these projects. So um, our team at Hustle Fund were really inspired in exploring this, this concept further and thought that it would be a good medium to, uh, to explore in a podcast. So as we were thinking about this podcast, we want to find a partner who completely understood in our view, some of these values uh, talks about it very openly and also has wonderful personality and expresses vulnerability first. And there's only one person that we want to work with. In fact, Lolita, you were the only person that we reached out to, and possibly we wouldn't have done this podcast without you. So enter Lolita um, as as our collaborator, along with our, our producer, Hung, who whom we've worked with for many years. And we put together this project in the summer of 2020. Um, Lolita, do you have uh, your side of the story to add to this?
2: It all started on Twitter. And we literally launched a year after Eric and I had our first DM on Twitter. And so I just got to say that. I feel like that I need to write a book about how everything in my life is happening because of Twitter. Um, But no, I mean, everything Eric said is is why we created First Pitches. Um, It's so important for us in the VC startup space to be real. And First Pitches is exactly that. We get real with people that are just the best founders out there, right? We have Aaron Levy, we have Arlen Hamilton, we have Elias Torres, um, Michelle Satlin, who you heard the, the first episode. Mm-hmm. And if you haven't, go to firstpitches.com and listen to it. It's really wonderful. And it's just, it's such a, when we sat down and we were planning on how is this going to evolve? How are we going to put it together? We're really thinking about the goals that we wanted to achieve, and one of those is: Hey, everyone starts somewhere. Everyone is human. There's a piece of vulnerability, and in that 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 concept of we're always learning and improving, and let's let's explore it, and let's let's sit with it, and see what happens, and then have our our founders in the extended founder and investor community make it more normal for it for you to just be like figuring it out because at the end of the day nobody likes to talk about it but everyone is just figuring it out so I'm super excited to to have done first pitch of season one and super excited to to see all of the episodes roll
0: out okay so it's a serialized show I guess um how many episodes are in in season one uh, we just did our so We kind of went into this saying, hey, we're going to do a season and see what happens. Uh, this is going to be season two here, uh, primarily with talking to investors. And season one was was founders. Um, so I guess, you know, questions, how many episodes and uh, any plans for season, season two yet?
2: Yeah, we have uh, 12 we recorded. And Eric, if you want to share some details on that.
1: Yeah, so we did this in a pretty interesting format. We have six guests for our season. And we're, uh, what we did was we did a recording with, uh, each guest and then immediately recorded a debrief, debrief episode with just Lolita hung and myself, where we had a chance to share all the notes that we individually took, ask some more questions amongst ourselves on some of these learnings. And those sessions also were surprisingly satisfying and, uh, got quite vulnerable too, in terms of like, Bring our own journeys into what we heard from the guests. So we decided that we wanted to try it in a season format. Um, it just was a little bit easier for us to mm-hmm. schedule a more compressed kind of timeline to put together these episodes. And also in the spirit of what we suggest to our own founders, when we try to coach, it's a bit of a pilot, right? We wanted to do a trial balloon, expend a little bit of effort in a, limited period of time, see how the market reacts. And then we'll decide, you know, whether we want to continue with this format, likely in a seasoned, serialized manner as well.
0: How'd you get the domain? Was it just available and you bought it or did you have to negotiate for it? Yeah,
2: it was just there. And the Twitter handle was just there. First pitches.
0: I love it. (laughs) I always love asking where people got their domains uh, because it's always an interesting story, typically. um, This one's boring
2: and we like that it was boring. Like, we it was just there. And we we're just like, it's awesome. You're,
0: you're not having to lease it or pay for it or give equity. So there you go. Um, I want to go back to Twitter for a second. Because uh, I also feel like Twitter is a magical place. Uh, we've found a lot of our guests. Lolita, I think that's maybe where even I might have DM'd you uh, originally. And uh, we found a lot of guests. Like Amanda Goetz uh, was on the podcast talking about her new company, House of Wise and CBD. And, and we got connected connect with her on Twitter. How do you guys think about Twitter, right? I mean, I know you're both very active and, and have an audience there. Uh, you know, there's a lot of great that happens there. And there lots of, there's a lot of hate <laughs> that happens there. Uh, and I think you both handle it so gracefully, especially the hate part. Um, so, like, how do you view Twitter as a medium? Why is it important for you as an investor? Uh, this wasn't a question I sent over ahead of time. I just find it interesting because you guys, you guys talk about it.
2: Eric, I'm going to point to you because you have very strong feelings about Twitter and I think everyone should hear them.
0: We actually
1: had a great conversation about this yesterday too, Lolita, or or on Monday. So I certainly want to hear your your perspective, Eric. So, you know, uh, there's a Buddhist saying that I try to live by, which is when you bow to the mirror, the reflected image bows back. Meaning the way that you treat your environment is just going to be brought back to you in kind so if i treat everyone like an insecure asshole uh expect that kind of behavior back but if i treat people with love and respect um i i get rewarded by that as well and i think the same goes with twitter so twitter is a very easy format uh i guess medium for people to troll you it's pseudonymous you know you can create a fake twitter and i can just begin like ragging on Mike anytime but uh that does happen on occasion, but what I find is that uh, it also creates an interesting kind of filtering mechanism. So if if what you're kind of bringing out to the world is a lot of love, uh, it's just overwhelmingly loving back. And there have been cases even in the past several months where well-known uh, people were, were attacking me for a variety of ideas, but it was kind of amazing because it was the community that I was uh, able to develop around me. And this wasn't necessarily like intentional that came to my defense. Uh, because they kind of understand the values that, and the, and a little bit more around the intent behind what I tried to tweet out, which is a lot of transparency, a lot of support, a lot of cheerleading for founders. But one of the big models and role models actually that I have that I look up to when I think about my own Twitter community I'm building is actually Lolita. So Lalita, I'd love to hear about like, you know, how have you been developing your, your Twitter community? It sounds so much more intentional and in strategy than what I've ever done.
2: Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. I sit down and I'm like, this is how I'm going to. No, (laughs) I, so I I love what the Buddha saying. Like I, I'm not, I'm just not that deep, Eric, but I I thought that was beautiful by the way. Um, To me, Twitter, especially while we've all been under this COVID era and we're all at home, Twitter to me has been a way of creating and maintaining relationships and giving. Uh, I think community at the core of it is all about giving and taking. And when you're able to create these symbiotic relationships, I think you get such a beautiful life because you have these incredible folks in your life. And so to me, I mean, it starts getting into the realm of the community fund, for example, and the community-driven thesis, because I believe that a community gives to each other And I am just, I think of myself as a member of this broader community, in particular of progressive venture capitalists who want to build in public, who want to share knowledge, who want to help not just the next generation of startup founders, uh, but also the next wave of investors. And this is something that that very much attracted me to Hustle Fund and Eric and Elizabeth because they were doing it for a long time. And, and so I take also inspiration from, from what, what Eric and Elizabeth, uh, they do. So I think about it very intentionally in terms of, hey, I want to build community. And I think community can be defined in so many different ways. I believe communities live in different spaces and interact in different spaces. And for me, Twitter is, is a space where I actually do think of a place where I'm going to, it's like my water cooler. Yeah. And it's also where I go meet friends, my partners, literally the community fund, another Twitter DM relationship started with Jesse Middleton, you know? So it's such a powerful thing. I honor it and I try to give, I do believe in karma. So whatever you put out is what you're going to get back. So very much in line with what Eric is talking about, but there is a downside and that is that there's people who can be critical of you and I think there's two kinds. There's a kind that's critical that helps you elevate yourself, elevate your thinking. And then there's the kind that's toxic. And there's a the kind that's dangerous too. Uh, and I, I've had both encounters where I had, um, or, or all three, I guess, and they are three in, in a way. Um, from a safety perspective, I had a Twitter follower that became a stalker. And so I had to actually really be thoughtful about, they were calling my day job. They were calling, like they were just doing all sorts of things. It was really strange. And I was very concerned about, is this person going to show up at my door? Mm -hmm. Let me get a security system. Then there are people who can just be toxic and I had, uh, there's one particular relationship that, that I've had for some time in the space. And I've just been so triggered by everything that's going on. And it just was too much. Like I, it, Like this person was giving me anxiety. And so I just had to block them. And in mm-hmm. fact, I put a, a posted tweet and I said, look, if you feel like you need to, it's okay to remove people from your life in real life or on Twitter, wherever it is, if it's going to give you a better sense of, of safety and just more positive vibes. Um, the third one is really great when everyone's just like, I love you. It's awesome. Let's do stuff together. But it, there's there's these different elements um, that you that, that are just part of it. And to me, there's just more pros than cons in engaging and building on Twitter. And from what I've seen, you can just build things that are even bigger than you would have thought because you're putting yourself out there, because you're sharing your values, because people are going to gravitate towards you if you put yourself out there as you are authentically. And that's what's happened. And I hope more of that happens. And in fact, this year, my word is collaboration. Collaboration. So I hope I do more collabs.
0: Collabs are in. We're, we've been saying that, it is. Collabs are in. Um, and yeah, I hope I have the, the confidence you guys do. I, I, I would love to be more authentic on Twitter and share more openly about what we're doing. It's just like, I don't have the skin for it. I take everything personal. Mm-hmm. I would like look at my mentions and probably cry at night. So I need to get better at that because uh, I know there's a lot of advantages, but I don't have the, the, the thick skin you guys do. Uh, no, it's not about it. Thanksgiving,
2: though, but Mike, like wherever you are, it's perfect. Um, but I will say that I do believe that it's a platform that can really amplify good and bad. yeah. and you can't do anything great with some some stuff you know falling apart and some roadblocks, but it's just part of life.
0: So yeah. fair enough. Yeah. Well, I wanted to get in, in back into to pitches, uh first pitches. When I first heard the name, by the way, I thought it was a podcast because uh, I didn't do any. Uh, or when I saw it, my Matt, who's our producer, said, hey, we're going to do first pitches. And I was like, ooh, that sounds fun. I thought it was a podcast where founders were going to pitch you their ideas. So I wrote all of my startup ideas that I was going to pitch you guys on and have you tell me if you would invest or not on the spot.
1: <laughs> I mean, we could do that at some point. Uh, that's a Here good they idea are. Are well. you ready?
0: Are you ready? <sighs> oh, great. All right. all right. Here they are. Uh, and you're not going to hurt my feelings because there's a reason why these haven't been started. But the, I keep a doc of all of my ideas. Uh, these are some of my favorite ones that I've recently come up with. Uh, and by the way, like I said, you're not going to hurt my feelings. I'm going to give you the macro idea of like why this is a problem, and then I'm going to give you my solution for it. Um, everyone loves accountability. Everyone loves OKRs and how Google did them. Uh, the problem with OKRs is that you only look at them when you set them and at the end of the quarter when you realize you didn't hit any of them. So my idea is an OKRs Chrome extension where anytime you open a tab in your in Chrome, uh, you see your OKRs and your progress towards them uh, every single day, literally because you're opening probably hundreds of tabs a day. Will you invest?
1: No. Yeah. Well, my take is that so I, I like OKRs. I think they actually are really good best practice. But what it comes down to is that this sounds like a reminder application mm-hmm. just to be reminded of like what the OKRs are. So there are pretty good solutions already in place, Slack bots, Superhuman Reminders, Boomerang, where I think you can cycle that up. Our team actually does look at our OKRs every week through Slackbot. Okay. Uh, so I, I just think that's going to be hard to monetize a differentiated business off this.
0: Like I said... My feelings aren't hurt. Lolita, what's your take. Why,
1: why are you crying right now? I see some I'm tears.
0: I'm not away. crying. I'm not
2: <laughs> crying. We can see it. The listeners can't see it, but Mike is crying now. Um, that's kidding. Yeah, for, for me, it's more of a, same with Eric. It is it is something that's important. And if you're a good manager, you've got that stuff figured out. And okay. my team looks at the OKRs every week. And if we need, we we use some technology. But in fact, we on a weekly basis, we're looking at, Okay, where are we? Where are we with all these things and moving forward? Okay. And as, as, Eric, as, as Eric will tell you, even with the podcast, I'm like, what metrics are we going to use to track our success, and so we can make adjustments and figure we, it out.
0: That was literally two days ago, where Lolita well, was literally a drum. Yeah, yeah. What metrics are you tracking? We had this conversation as well uh, for the podcast. For us, it's more brand building than listenership. I'd be curious, what are you guys thinking about?
2: Part of it is downloads. So are people listening? Um, I'm definitely also really interested in the email list that we build uh, because these are people that are going to be our community that if we do season two or whatever it is that we're doing, um, really want to gouge the interest and how helpful thing, people are. Um, from That's from a numerical perspective. I'm also really curious to just keep an ear out for what people are saying. So I'm keeping track of Responses and what people say they love about the show. And I think that there's a really, it's really important with metrics to have your qualitative and your, in addition to your quantitative.
0: Love it. All right. Next idea gambling, specifically sports betting, is becoming legal in more states. Uh, Why should MGM and all these big casinos make all of the money? Why not have a sports book? that is funded by the crowd or your friends uh, so that even though while they're losing money, they might be making investment back on the sports book. So it's kind of fintech meets uh, uh, sports betting.
2: Pass. Uh, I actually sold into uh, Native American tribes, and they're all about casinos. That's where they make money. I sold them tech solutions. And one of the things, this has been like regulation is the thing that inhibits some of the growth. And so unless you were like super awesome and know that there's going to be some regulation that's going to allow you to gamble like this uh, and make it scalable, maybe from a business perspective, but based on regulations and things like that makes it very, very difficult. And you've really got to know the ins and outs of gambling.
1: Yeah, I, I would pass too. It's not to say that this can't be a a, a great business. Uh, I think a lot of money can be made potentially, especially if the regulatory stuff is starting to loosen. It's more that, uh, at least at Hustle Fund, we we don't invest in most vice categories and we consider gambling to be a vice category. And just personally, like I've had family members and friends who've lost everything because of gambling addiction. And so easing, creating more accessibility in that is just, is just something I'm not personally interested in. There we go.
0: Next one. Offsites as a service. Now, I wrote this one pre-COVID because uh, we're a remote first company. I actually think it's going to be even more important post-COVID. Tell me more. What, is
2: it, what does it mean? So,
0: offsite as a service. Um, oh, a way, I, I don't know if this is fully verticalized or not, but a way for me to go in as a founder or leader of a team or whatever I'm trying to accomplish because this could be even team-based, Right. Uh, where do, what am I trying to accomplish? You know, is it team building? is it fun? Uh, is it brainstorming? Uh, what's my budget? Uh, where do my different people live? And we kind of have turnkey for you everything. Um, we've had to do this at visible now we do two a year. like our first one to give you an idea was in Copenhagen and we' did it in a hostel. so it's it's definitely evolved, but a way to run offsites as service.
2: Eric, you want to go first on this one?
0: Yeah. So the way that I'm viewing the
1: lens of all these questions that you're asking, or these pitches, is is a venture backable. Like, would I put hustle fund money behind it? And for that, that's a pretty high threshold. From like our definition of a venture backable business is at whatever post money valuation, we can insert our first check into. Can we see a hundred x outcome? So if we invest at like a million dollar valuation, can I get to hundred x on outcome on acquisition? Uh, as a result, like the bars, almost everything I'm going to say no to, but like we say no in 99% of things every month. So no, but I think I'd actually heavily use this because we spend a lot of time on and, and pretty good amount of resources on offsites within our team. And it's it's actually much more mindshare than I'd like to admit. And I also do think that if you find the right kind of niche, it could be a pretty great services business like you can be making even like tens of millions of dollars possibly on this. So it could be a fabulous business. But if, uh, as my, my friend now, Mike, like we're, we're now best friends is just, uh, I would say like, I would rather bootstrap this, maybe take a tiny bit of angel money, but no VC money.
2: Yeah, I would say the same. Um, I think it could make money. I think that, uh, I, I personally would want to even, even for an SMB I would like to look under the hood because the, I want to better understand the economics of how much human power you'd be putting into it versus the balance of leveraging technology. But offsites tend to be a lot of human interaction, and that's always very difficult to scale. And so if you found this like to be your passion and you want you were okay with an SMB, that would be probably my, my guess of what it would turn into.
0: Last one, and this is actually great. I'm glad I did this because all of my questions stem from what we just learned. Uh, Sales tax as an API. So uh, visible is the point now. We're doing multi million dollars a year in revenue, and then I'm now I'm encountering for the first time the pain of uh, sales tax, specifically states uh, sales tax and nexus laws and everything else. Uh, The solutions are super expensive if they exist at all, or you pay seven five hundred bucks an hour to take care of it for you. More software coming online, we all know this, sales tax as an API, uh, so it can do that automatically.
2: I think the challenge with this one is, again, when you look at regulation, and depending on where you're doing business, there may be different things that apply or processes. There was a startup I I looked at when I was doing my MBA program, and they were trying to uh, address sales tax at airports to find a loophole, actually, in buying luxury goods. That was kind of the, their starting point. And, and one of the things that they quickly learned was about, you know, what are the regulatory implications of regions? And there might be in the U.S., federal or state, or even internationally, what has to happen? What are those complications? And so, again, I think it, you could probably figure it out for a region. And it's the same thing that makes law sometimes really difficult. Um, or even insurance, um, really difficult because there will be different things you need to submit for every state, or, or different things that you might have to look for and do uh, in different areas, and, and that might make it very difficult to scale. But again, it could be a good business because it's a big problem.
1: You're starting to get closer to my heart, Mike, in terms of like the types of businesses that get me excited. So. I think Lolita's concerns are really valid, but I'm going to say maybe on this one. And the reason why is I love these kinds of picks and shovels businesses, like unsexy companies that are intermediating value exchange between two parties that just generate lots and lots of money because so much value is being passed. So maybe in the sense that I don't really know the space very well, I'm actually a little bit surprised that uh, sales tax Reconciliation has been solved by, you know, like, POS systems or Stripe or, or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I would think that they would be solved. So if – I but I trust your judgment because I'm not, like, as close to, uh, I guess, the middle to uh, – as a practitioner to understand this stuff. Um, I probably should, though, because we we do actually do have some services stuff that, that are cross-state. Uh,
0: so Fingers if, cr- yeah. Sorry, didn't mean to cut you off. Fingers crossed, Stripe does solve it. Like these are all problems I've had in, in one way of like running a business. So I just write these yeah. down. I've done a little bit of research and at least for sales tax, like, uh, you know, collecting or understanding the laws and collecting is just a pain and Stripe doesn't do it for you yet.
1: Okay, well, yeah. I mean, like uh, businesses that abstract away those kinds of complexity for a fee, I'm a big fan of. So if, if there's uh, some greenfield space there, uh, potentially that could be a, a one that I'm excited about. Okay. And if so you're was,
2: an expert in the area, for me, yeah. so much of this is like if it's regulation specific. I definitely it's not just about the idea; it's also about what's your background.
0: Yeah. Do you <laughs> yeah. think that's true? Because counter some counter examples, I guess is I was talking to. Um, Jim McKelvey, who's one of the co-founders of Square. And when him and Jack started Square, they knew nothing about the payments industry. And I think like in, and same thing with Stripe, right? I don't think the the Collison brothers knew much about, they weren't experts in that industry. Do you think you have to be an expert to start a business in a specific space?
2: I don't think that you have to be an expert to start a business in any space. But I, for me personally, as an investor, if I'm looking at a highly regulated um, space, I definitely want to make sure that someone on the team has that expertise. And if they don't personally know it, that someone um, on the team, whether if they're right at the beginning, that they have a close advisor or an investor or something that it, that is going to provide that complimentary, because you have to figure it out. And so if everybody's starting from scratch, then that... Um, Differentiation or possibility of of figuring things out sooner or faster, I think, is limited. But of course, like there's a lot of examples of founders that had no background and they still did awesome. So that definitely happens. For me, I personally do like to see that the that the founders are bringing to the table something that's going to enable the growth and success of a company. And yeah. sometimes it's industry, sometimes it's something different. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, regu- highly regulated industries, it's a little scary to be like, all right, I'll just invest and see what happens.
1: Yeah. The path to hiring expertise, I think would will need to be there for us to have some evidence that you can fill that gap of your knowledge. In the case of Stripe, uh, one of our investors, this guy named Dana Wagner, he was uh, like one of their chief like legal advisors for for many years. And he was just an expert in these kinds of payment rails Systems and I think did an incredible job in, in making sure that all the infrastructure was set up properly. Um, you know, some of the most exciting high alpha kind of founders to invest in though are, are certainly uh, outsiders, as as we've all kind of identified. You know, one of our companies is a company called Boom Supersonic. They're building a supersonic commercial jet company, yeah. and Blake, the founder, does not have an aeronautics background. Who's not an engineer of that kind. He was just really into airplanes, created a spreadsheet of his model, brought it to an MIT professor, and was like, I think it's possible to create a really uh, fuel efficient supersonic jet. Does this, do these numbers make sense? And then when the professor's like, holy shit, I think it does. <laughs> uh, <Yeah. laughs> that, that's when it was sort of game on where he could actually build the story moving forward. Uh, I will say this, though. So, at least in that case, it was not easy peasy for that outsider to make the case to raise money. Uh, and I think that that's sort of the harder path you take as an outsider building into an industry that you sure. don't have those kinds of experiences. It's like it's not obvious for a long time until it's completely obvious, uh, um, after the fact.
0: Yeah. What? So I think, uh, you know, I went through five pitches, uh, it's to you guys and they were quick, right? Those were like 10 seconds each. How much does a first impression matter for a founder with their pitch? Uh, you know, it, it, it seems like it might be make or break. Like whether you're looking at a deck that you're getting, I'm sure you're seeing, you know, hundreds if not thousands of deals a month. Like how much does the first impression matter?
2: I, I mean, it depends. Is it a first impression through the deck and an email? Or is it a first impression like in a, in a
0: you know, yeah, voice, a good, voice that,
2: enabled pitch?
0: <laughs> sure. Um, yeah, let, let, me, let me pull on that a little bit. Um, so I think both of you have kind of open applications, right? Where any founder... Mm-hmm. Uh, yep. can apply for funding. Uh, so they're submitting their deck or their pitch. Um, so let's use that as the, the lens, I guess. So you don't know them ahead of time. It's not through voice. It's them sending you something. Mm-hmm. Um, is that the right way to do it? Uh, and if so, you know how much does that first impression matter of what they actually do?
2: Mm-hmm. So for me, I, I keep in mind that, especially because I have worked with and have focused a lot on underestimated founders, different people come from different places and so i when i'm looking at dex i try to be actually very empathetic and know that sometimes people's skill sets don't necessarily um, say you you have a really great business but you may not be really great at dex uh, that's okay but if the core information is there and I could see some of the thought, like in a story storyline, actually, I think that's one of the most important things to me is I love it. Like, I'm really uh, impressed when a founder has a deck that reads almost like a children's book, uh, Enjoyable and short, um, yeah. and and someone who's able to storytell is really great. But then you have to, in my mind, I'm I'm balancing it out with, well, are they great storytellers, salespeople? Um, is that it, or do they also have, if they're a technology company, the the tech skills, and do they have that go to market sales? um strength to then scale. So I'm literally trying to pay attention to how thought like, are they good storytellers? Cause you have to sell. Like pitching Mm -hmm. is selling. So if you're not good at it, it's okay at the beginning. But if they're like five years down the line and it's like, I don't understand what they're doing, because sometimes I read decks and I'm like, I don't know what this business is. And that that in that case, the first impression does make a big Mm -hmm. impression, but if it's something in the spectrum, I try to be really empathetic and, and try to understand. And I'm looking for team. I'm looking for market. I'm looking for like, what are they doing? That's, that's going to give them that differentiation wedge. And for us at the community fund, it's, is it is is a community driven.
1: I have a lot of thoughts on this as well, in terms of hustle funds model for how we treat first impressions. So let me first start with a, a statement that I think is uncomfortable for me to say. But it's actually the truth, is that I, Eric Bon, am too racist and sexist to actually have an objective perspective on people, if I actually see them in person before they just start to speak. And I think a lot of this is actually because I came from a very privileged upbringing. I grew up in a rich part of Michigan. I went to Rich Kids College. I worked at Rich Kids Places afterward. And... Is a really myopic view of the people who I was surrounded with over and over again. And I work with a therapist, and I work with like diversity coach, and all these things to to make sure that like you know I can undo all of these uh, biases that I've learned over time. So if our tasks with the idea of like you know um, I need to put a million dollars upfront into a business at the pre-seed stage, and we're going to talk to these founders, and then we're just going to decide in these meetings. What feels safe in Silicon Valley today as an industry at whole is a really narrow grouping of men who went to Stanford University and worked at Google Mm -hmm. and Facebook. And disproportionately, a lot of money goes to those founders, right? So at our fund, though, you know, so let's put that. So let's recognize that bias for a second. But how do we counteract that? So at our fund, like we have a mantra, which is that great hustlers look like anyone and come from anywhere. And. Uh, It turns out that in the evidence of our fund is as we invest into teams based on their ability to hustle. So we start with a small $25,000 check into a lot of teams, spread that out in a a very diverse pool of of founders, work with each team on growth projects for four to eight weeks, usually related to sales or user acquisition. That's when we can get a much better sense of the team's ability to execute their hustle, the market. Um, And then, you know, for a subset of those that just hustle very well into good markets, we'll concentrate a lot much more money. It turns out when you invest in that model, you get natural diversity. It becomes like almost like half women and 27% underrepresented groups and so forth. It just looks like the population of the United States. So we emphasize, I think, the pitch less in the beginning. If it looks interesting, we want to begin working with that team immediately, which for us is a huge counterbalance. So what are things to do that we do to try to counterbalance our own kind of like first impressions problem? So whether a warm introduction or a cold introduction, we dump everyone into our ingestion form. Everyone has to start from an even playing field of going onto our website and filling out the application where you can get initially judged. So there isn't really a concept of a warm introduction or a cold introduction at that point. The second thing that we see is like pitch decks are optional. You just need to make the cases to like, how are you thoughtful, thoughtfully thinking about team, problem, solution, market, and traction as it relates to your business? And if it feels like pretty thoughtful, that's when a bunch of email follow-ups will happen where we try to get a sense of like how your brain works. Finally, when we do the pitch, it's all done on the phone. We don't do video. And the reason why is like, if I see Mike and he's just overwhelmingly handsome and has a beautiful (laughs) smile, like that actually plays into this latent implicit biases that I'm trying to overcome. I'd rather, like, it's not perfect. I can generally discern gender and all that thing. But like, there's something different when the ideas are just hitting your ears versus your eyes that allows us, I think, to be a little bit more objective about what we're listening to. Right, And that's actually where we can make our decisions, usually within 25 minutes, as to issuing a 25K check very quickly. So then we can begin the real work, which is collaborating with each other, because the found, we're, we're, in some ways, testing the founders through this project, but more critically, the founders are testing us, right? to see like are we actually good partners as well. And that kind of level of checks and balances along the way, I think is, is allowing us to do our work and, and hopefully overcoming some of these institutional biases that we feel as VCs towards very certain small groupings of people who get disproportionate access to seed capital.
2: and I just have to vouch for Eric and say he is very thoughtful and mindful about his biases. and And I know this because we've had a lot a handful, I won't say a lot, but a handful of heart of hearts on this topic. And it's just it's just difficult. And if we really want to address bias up front, you've got to roll up your sleeves and do it. And even me as a woman of color, I have to keep myself in check, too. Because you know it's it's just it's human nature to to be biased. It just is, and so it's really refreshing and and part of the reason why I'm so excited and have been so excited to work with Eric because he's about it, right? Like let's let's take a look, let's figure it out. Um, I'd like to just add that um, I think it's it's more than just the first impression for us Mm -hmm. at the Community Fund. One thing is so if if there's interest. From one partner in the one investment partner, or investor in our fund, um, part of our process is also really short because we write fifty k checks, and so what we do is we find two investment partners that have conviction, and so it, it doesn't. So we're trying to also address um, some of those biases that we may have, as well as just not just biases from a per, human perspective, but also from a business perspective and hash out like, hey, how do we feel about this deal? And how are we, do we have that conviction? Because we're going to be part of their lives, part of their communities, and we want to make sure that it works both ways. I personally um, like to work with people that I want to have a relationship with for the next you know, several decades, if not the rest of my life. And so that's definitely something I personally think about. I think I've told Eric, one of, one of my... One of my filters is, um, can I think of this person? I was talking to Jesse Middleton, my partner today, and I was saying, yeah, like my filter is, can I think of myself being stuck in an elevator with this founder or whoever it is and they fart? Am I okay with that? Or like, <laughs> would I have like a serious, serious issue with it? And I think if I can think of that and I'm okay with your stink, I'm going to be all right with you.
1: Yeah. Well, you haven't smelled my farts yet
2: <laughs> that's 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 true. That's true.
1: <laughs> you may not be okay with
0: it. Eric, I'm curious. it sounds like you you like you might have some data. I want to go quickly just back to your point. Um, how many you know companies or maybe a percentage uh, have you guys funded without a deck? Because you always hear about how important the deck is. Um, have you do you have any data around funding companies without one? It's less than 10%. I mean, the vast
1: majority of founders uh, still create, produce a deck and actually think it is a worth. So at pre-seed, to some degree, like this is my Dr. Jekyll Mr. Hyde kind of perspective on this, like it's almost all BS because it's so speculative. It's just mm-hmm. like, it's so early, like we don't really know, but I do, but on the other side of it, it's just like, how are you organizing ideas and just like understanding where your, map, your brain maps decks are a pretty decent medium for doing that because you're, you're forced to be succinct, uh, forced to use different kinds of mediums, not just text, but also visuals. And it's kind of nice to see like how someone's brain works. Um, the, the caveat is a really good one that Lolita said, which is like, you can still be great at business, but horrible at making decks. So like, like just because, so visual bias is like another thing. It's just like, how, how nice is that? Mm-hmm. Um, but so the vast majority of founders produce a deck, even at the very day, like day one part of, of their journey. And I highly encourage that. But there are cases where uh, they don't have it ready yet because it's so early. They just got a lot of momentum. They just started to build and start to sell and they just haven't had time. And those cases, we'll still consider them, of course, um, so here's one one last thing I will start to share, which is like increasingly I'm finding a new trend, which is people produce uh, sending us Notion deal mm-hmm. yeah. memos more so than decks. I'm a little bit mixed uh, about like whether I like that still. Um, it's it's cool because I can sort of copy and paste and use that for my deal memo, <laughs> and I appreciate that work. But uh, you know, at the other at the other hand, like I do still think that decks are are good a good practice for a lot of reasons. Uh, Lolita, what about yourself?
2: Yeah, I mean we have a show, a podcast called First Pitches. So we believe in, <laughs> in the pitches. <laughs> uh, just, so I'll just say that um, all of, so to answer your question, Mike, uh, all of the the founders that we've funded so far um, have had decks. I We don't make that a requirement though. And I will say that I like Notion decks um, or Notion pages with the information that you would have in, in decks. And And I, what I really believe is, look, if a a formal traditional deck works best for you, and that's going to show and express your business in the best way, do that. If it's a Notion page, I'm totally cool with it. I want people to feel comfortable and be successful in their pitches and successful in communicating and communication actually is part of the reason why I I tend to kind of like notion a little bit better, but I want the Notion page to also have images because it, again, there's something about can you succinctly put something together because you're going to have to probably pitch to your customers. I mean, not probably, you will. So I want to know that you can put something together that makes sense. Um, But communication is so important. And again, it goes and ties back with storytelling. Can you communicate your ideas? Because even if you have the best idea and you're the smartest, if you're unable to communicate it, to sell it, to sell your vision, to recruit a team, to sell your vision, to recruit partners, to sell mm-hmm. a vision, to get investors. That's like, a, you know, a, a, a non-starter.
0: Bringing it back to, to first pitches and pitching, I think this is super helpful for maybe first-time founders that are listening. You know, what is a pitch, right? A, has Shark Tank done us a disservice in the sense that you kind of walk into this room and you... You know, ramble for two minutes about your business, and then uh, it's over. Like, is a pitch uh, a conversation? Is it something more formal? I'm sitting in front of the room and and you know, going slide by slide. Like, what makes a great pitch? And and what is that? What does it really mean to to you guys?
2: Yeah, to me, it's literally communicating the story of what you're going to build, and, and in particular, telling the vision of what you're trying to create. How, how much money there is out there to capture in that space in solving this problem, what you're actually building, why it is that your team is the right team to do this. And to me, it's also something that I see founders miss quite a bit is the roadmaps. Uh, it's not even traction. Like most, most people put something on traction, but the roadmaps, like how are you thinking about this? in the medium term, long term. And I know it's highly speculative, especially when you're early on. But if I'm going to sign up to be on a journey, because that's how I think about it. If I'm going to sign up to be an investor and be on the journey with a founder, I want to kind of know where we're going, Uh, have some idea of what the idea is. And if we need to pivot along the way, like that's cool, but that there's forethought in Hey, from a VC perspective, we need to make this grow very big, very fast. And I want to understand what your thought process is. So it's not just like, I need money for the next 12 months. I, I personally like to understand the roadmap the roadmap of how the, the founders are thinking, not just from a business perspective, but from a product perspective as well.
1: So I've been with my wife for 18 years and I proposed to her 13 years ago. And I remember the specific question that I asked her when I got down on one knee. It was, do you want to grow old with me, All right? And the reason why I shared this is, especially when you're an early founder, whom you select to have in your life as an investor, employee, a co-founder, it's, as Lolita said, like a long journey. It's seven to 10 years, probably, maybe 15 years before your IPO or your massive acquisition or something. Um that that is a, a very substantial part of your life. And what so I do a lot, of, I do a lot of the fundraising at our fund. And when I come into my own first pitch, um, I actually have that question in my mind quite a bit. It's like, do I want to grow old with this person? So part of it is, is for me, it's actually condensing like <clears throat> the the first meeting, the date, and then the marriage in a much more compressed timeline of like, you know, I want to just get a sense of sharing like what we're up to, who, what what our values are, how we're different, all that stuff. But what I'm listening for is actually the funder's values too, right? Does this person seem to be a really good ally to me? And we say no to a lot of LPs, you know, in our in, in, in the work that we do. And I think founders, now this is actually a very privileged statement, like sometimes you just have to take the money to survive. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I actually think that you got to do that sometimes, even if it's an asshole. But if you're in a position where like you have enough of a lead list, you know, you you have a little, some semblance of choice, then the next bar is just like, can I select for people who have really good shared values? And so my whole take is two, are two things. <clears throat> um, one is sort of treating it as like a two-way interview and like really believing it that like you are as much interviewing your investor as the investor is interviewing you, um, a small this part two is actually kind of a tactical thing is at least for myself, I don't believe in actually pitching with the deck. I actually because. think that like, it feels like a much more even balance of power when I can just stare in Mike's face, see yeah. his like facial twitches and like, understand, like, does he really care about this like really important value that I'm trying to express, but he just like, looks totally bored. You know, those kinds of small kind of inherent cues and non-visual, I guess, visual cues, uh, nonverbal cues are, are something that I think that starts to express some level of truth to hopefully, hopefully get you to comfort in asking that big question of like, now do you want to grow old with me and invest in me? Um, so
0: yeah, I'll stop there. It's I so want true. to grow
2: old with you, Eric. I
0: do. I want oh, to grow old with both of you guys. We are
1: like brother and sister at this point. So
0: <laughs> we asked all of our <laughs> founders, um, Uh, the NPS score of their last lead investor and if they would recommend them to another founder. Uh, So the data is going to be imperfect, obviously, but it was pretty surprising. It was really low. It was like lower than airlines um, is what we found. So it matters, right? Like who you actually decide to hitch your wagon to. uh, And, you know, again, the data... (laughs) Is not surprising um uh, and it's not 100 percent accurate but the idea is like it didn't come back with everyone giving it a 10. Uh, yeah. And so you know picking out um, which investors the, you this, work like, with is we,
1: we do pull our we do have an NPS score with our founders every quarter right now ours is sitting at 91 and then we we uh publish our results on hustlefund.vc slash founders
0: that's such a humble brag. It is
1: not humble brag <laughs> at all. It's me just straight up bragging, saying like, "Ha ha ha, we're amazing."
0: That's true. That's what I'm right. That that's just so a brag. awesome,
2: actually, Eric. I, I'd love to do that too. And we're just getting started. I, I'll pick your brain on that at some point on how do you. It's just a survey because because I I think that's that's really important to get feedback um, as investors.
1: Thirty-seven out of hundred
2: what What was that?
1: I was gonna say your your score will be like Aww. immeasurable, right? It'll be like way, well past the hundred score or whatever <laughs> no, but, but
2: but I love this. I love this because I personally um anytime I like I talk to a founder, I actually send them a survey to ask like how they think uh, I did um when it's coaching sessions or things like that because I want to continue to get better. and I, and I think not just to have a like a a score to share with people, but Honestly, if you want to really add value, you need to listen to feedback as an investor and, and and take it and run with it. And I think that's like that next level of investor and that I know Eric, Elizabeth, and she are. And it, it's it's something we need to do more of because sometimes it ends up feeling like, well, the founders have to get all the feedback and it's a two-way thing. I love what Eric said about, hey, it's a two-way interview, Uh, And if you do have the luxury of turning money down that doesn't make sense, um, then do that because taking money from jerks is no fun. And I've had founders who have asked me, should I take money? And I said, look, I can't from this person who has this particular history. And I have to say, look, you've got to do you and figure out where you're at and what makes sense. If you have the luxury of not taking money from someone that you will not want to ideally have many years with, maybe don't do it. Um, But you have to be really conscious about, like, you gotta do what you gotta do. That's just it.
0: It's almost impossible to get someone off your cap table. So uh, you gotta do what you gotta do. Uh, How are we doing on time? I think we gotta wrap up here. Uh, We're coming on the hour. Two more questions, I guess. I mean, I have so many questions. Maybe we need to do part two at some point. Um, I want. We talked about storytelling quite a bit, so I think this, I'll bubble this question up. Uh, when you guys are talking to a founder the first time and, and you're getting to know them, uh, you talked about Roadmap as well, uh, and we talked about market sizing with all the ideas you shot down of mine. Um, how do you guys <laughs> think about market sizing, vision setting, storytelling? Um but then how do you counterbalance that with execution, maybe lack of focus, um, you know, uh, a mile wide, an inch deep? Like how should I as a founder think about those two things, right? Because there's, there's certainly a balance there. How, how do you see like the best founders balance the, the huge opportunity, but hey, we need to go do this one thing with a pix or an ax or a shovel right now.
2: Yeah, for, for me, it's, I, I keep it pretty simple and it's something that I, I talk to founders quite a bit. I say, look, Cause some founders really, a lot of founders actually want to solve all the world's issues within their market in their first go. And I, and I say, look, don't, show, don't sell yourself short on your vision, like shoot for the moon. I want to hear what you, how you're going to change this market. But when it comes to starting focus, 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 and establish that, that traction so that you get you actually getting feedback from the market. Yes, this is working. This is going in the right direction, or not. And then, as you start seeing success, and you see that it's going to help you scale, help you grow, or you're in a place of uh, you can grow and expand what you're doing. I think that's the best way to do it. And so, I love I love founders with big visions. You've got to do it. Like you've got to think big. I will go back to Michelle Satlin, our interview with her, and she's mm-hmm. like, "If you're going to do something." do it big. It's like not worth it otherwise. And, and I I agree with that. I respect other opinions as well, but, um, so I'd say big vision, but make sure you're, you're realistic enough to focus on. That's why I love Tam, Sam, Soam. Like tell me, and the reason why I like to see it is not just because I want to see the numbers, but because I want to know what assumptions you've made and how you're looking at the market and how, if you need to pivot where you're going to go, And then the next thing about that is, this some of it is is very qualitative, right? Vision, but the quantitative part is it starts to show in the traction. Mm -hmm. And some founders are like, "Well, I haven't sold a dollar," and I'm like, "Well, it doesn't. I don't need a dollar. Traction can mean you did a survey with 200 people and you're starting there, but there needs to be some signal in in the market that we're going in the right direction."
0: Yeah,
1: Eric. Um, Yeah, really quick, I'll I'll respond to like a part of that, which is my favorite question to ask founders is, is what are you measuring right now and why? Um, and usually a lot of interesting secondary questions come out or or thoughts come out of that. It's just like, well, we're measuring this one key metric here. It's just like, why did you select that? You know, why is this the most important metric right now? How are you dashboarding it? How are you instrumenting it? How are your experiments actually uh, pushing it, the value up or down? What's the next measure for the next phase of business? Uh, A lot of it is just you, I gain a lot of insight on prioritization, their view of the market, uh, what it's going to take to build a big company, on how they select measurements, um, and it's also very easy for me to hold them accountable too. Which is like, well, you said that like new installs is your mm-hmm. your big metric here, but you're you're talking about these activities that don't seem to address it. Like, what what's what's changed in the business? So um, that's that's sort of my my okay. favorite.
2: Full circle um, back to metrics because yes. it and it's and it's true. So one thing, um, and Mike, we've talked about this. One thing I love from founders is they tell me they're going to do something that's associated with a metric that they've associated with success and then they go do it and they keep me in the loop and we are building a relationship and they're doing what they're going to they said they were going to do and that's like magic because Mm. not everybody does what they say they're going to do or tracks to something and that speaks volumes for me yeah
0: yeah investors invest in lines and not dots as we always tell people right um and, and how do you help draw those those connections and you can't track apples one month and oranges the next uh should founders pay to pitch no never okay uh, last question what percent of you know pitches do you see to come you know, what's the ratio of how many pitches or or deals you see to the percent funded
2: roughly two percent for us.
0: Yeah, 1%. So we we see 500 deals
1: per month. We'll invest in five companies per month.
0: Yep. Yeah. I think that's super important. Uh, last thing I just want to echo to you know all the founders is that it's very much a process. There's a lot of no's. And so if you do that math and extrapolate it and hey, if you think you're in the top decile or quartile, think about how many investors you need to talk to and build relationships with uh, because you are going to hear a lot of no's. Well, um,
1: just on that too, and yeah. for founders out there listening, it's possible too that you're the only person, right? And everyone does has no idea what they're talking about. I never got That's a single true. investor to say yes to my first company, but it worked out. So everyone else is an idiot except for you.
2: Yeah and, <laughs> yeah, and to resonate, like this is such an important point. Investors don't know it all, and we get it wrong a lot of the time. So if you get no's, it doesn't mean that your business is not good enough. It just means there's a difference in opinion or there's a different perspective. And so to that, I just say, keep going and figure out what is the best path. And for a lot of founders, my, my advice would be also understand what kind of business you want to build. Sometimes founders really are excited about building SMBs, small, medium businesses, but because they hear you have to be a unicorn to be cool, they start going down that track but the, neither is better or worse they're just different and understanding what capital you need in order to support your business is, is is very key um and other than that just uh we're here to help when whenever we can
0: there it is uh Eric Melito I can't thank you enough for coming on and joining the Founders Board podcast. There was so much there, a lot we didn't even get to get to, which is a shame, but hey, maybe we can chalk it up and and do it another day. Um, For all the founders, check out uh, First Pitches, firstpitches.com. I already listened to the first episode. They're dropping weekly. Uh, You can sign up on their site and even get a chance to uh, talk to Lolita and Eric herself about what's going on in your business. Uh, So check it out. Uh, I can't recommend it enough. And if you have the opportunity to work with them, like take their money, you heard about the NPS scores uh thanks for coming on you guys any last thoughts
2: uh see you on twitter i'm at lolita tab
1: yeah thank you so much mike for setting this up Uh, wonderful opportunity to speak to your audience and uh lolita we'll be talking much more soon right we have a lot of first pitches uh episodes to drop in the subsequent weeks
2: I'm really excited about it. Can't wait to hear your, your, your thoughts on our debrief for the next episode. So, Mike, we want to hear your, yeah, your thoughts. I'm
0: excited. It gets, oh, it gets awesome. spicy. <laughs> All right. Thanks, everyone.